0: Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Our guest today is Yale astronomer Deborah Fisher, who studies and searches for planets far outside Earth's own solar system. She will be discussing today how she goes about her work. We'll be taking some of your questions. And Deborah, we're glad to have you here on aqueous planet Earth. (laughs) That's right. My first question for you uh, today is, uh, could you define planet for us? I don't think everybody really understands what a planet is.
1: Right. Well, uh, I think the simplest definition is that a planet is an object that circles a sun. But it gets complicated uh, because there are also moons that circle the planets, and because we had Pluto in our solar system, and the International Astronomical Union defined Pluto as not being uh, like the other planets in our solar system, but being more like the Kuiper Belt objects that are outside of our solar system. In other words, one of you know hundreds of other objects that are, are similar to it. So there's an additional constraint that they added, and that is that the, uh, the object that's a planet has to be large enough that when it's forming in a, a disk of dust and debris, that it clears a gap uh, as it's going through. And we don't think that Pluto did that.
0: Now, astronomers study <clears throat> all aspects of the universe, stars, galaxies, black holes. How did, how did planets become your thing?
1: Well, I was actually finishing graduate school just as the first exoplanet was discovered. Uh, and, and my, my uh, PhD thesis was on spectroscopy, and that's the technique that was being used to find planets. So, you know, really I feel incredibly lucky. Uh, it was partly being in the right place at the right time you know quite literally so you know just luck uh, and uh, you use the
0: term exoplanet and if right. correct me if I'm wrong but that's a planet that's almost any planet outside of our own solar that's system that's right okay
1: extra it's short for a contraction of extrasolar planets so outside the solar system
0: Gotcha. so how are these planets that you study these exoplanets how are they different from the planets in our solar system?
1: Well that's a great question and it's one of the things that we were most interested in because the first planets that were discovered were very unlike the planets in our solar system in the sense that you know maybe they had similar mass for example to Jupiter and similar density but they were in orbits that you know were not 12 years long but were four days hugging their stars so that was a a real surprise and it really you know, it threw us for a loop. We had to think about the interpretation of our data very hard with that one. So I, I think the one common thread, the one thing we've discovered is that planet formation is a chaotic process. Mm. There's one thing that rules, and it's gravity. Uh, so you start out with a, a disk where the planets are forming around the star. And there are thousands of wannabe planets that are that are collecting debris and matter and building up. And then they gravitationally interact with each other. and you know, you end up with whatever kind of a solar system I think is gravitationally stable is possible, and that's what we're seeing.
0: Have, uh, do <coughs> many of the exoplanets that you and others have found uh, resemble in any significant way the planets in our own solar system?
1: Well, the characteristics that I like are, first of all, we're finding many multiple uh, planet systems. I think that's the rule. Pairs so, uh, almost? Uh, well, we, we find two, three, four, five, six, seven planets orbiting a star, a given star. So that's a characteristic that's similar to our own solar system. Um, and we're finding a range of masses that that go sort of from Earth-like uh, in, in, their, in their mass and, and maybe their composition or their density uh, all the way up to Jupiter-like. So they, they kind of span that range.
0: And naturally, um, it's, uh, it's hard to think about other planets without wondering, as uh, one of our uh, viewers, Kevin, emailed us to ask, do you think it's likely that there's life on other planets and And if there is, um, how will we recognize it?
1: Right. Well, okay, so that's why we're all in this business, okay? We're not actually, uh, finding planets is a great bonus. We want to understand, you know, how planets form and how our solar system formed. But I think that, you know, and, and we all were sort of quiet about this in the beginning. Because there had been a lot of kickback you know, against SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, mm. in the 1990s um, when the small program of uh, federal funding was canceled. So we were all sort of quiet about the fact that we're looking for planets because we're looking for platforms for life. Uh, and so that's what drives us. And do I think that there's life elsewhere? Um, I don't see how there cannot be, actually. Um, do I think it's like us? Uh, technological, uh, there I think the odds probably go down. So it Mm -hmm. might be very small numbers, but it's not inconceivable that somewhere else in our Milky Way galaxy, which is comprised of something like 400 billion stars, there's another civilization asking similar questions, or has asked in the past, or will ask in the future. Uh, Similar questions that we're asking, are we alone?
0: Mm. So to the extent that you can <clears throat> separate your scientist self from your person self, right. um, is what leads you to believe right. that as a scientist that there that there might be life
1: out there? Right. Um, other life. Uh, so the the first thing is that when we found the first multi-planet system. It was around the star Upsilon Andromeda. There were three planets orbiting that system. And it was in 1999. I remember walking across the campus looking at the data and thinking, wow, this, this really suggests that planet formation is a robust process. Something we didn't know. In 1990, for all we knew, stars could form without any planets. Okay, that was this, the facts. We, we just didn't know. And now we're seeing this incredible bounty of planets and multiple planet systems. And at exactly the same time, I was listening to the biologists who said wow, wherever we find water on this planet, it doesn't matter if it's miles beneath the surface of the Earth, you know, or it doesn't matter how acidic it is, if we find water, we're finding life. Mm. Uh, And if you put those two ideas together, um, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that life didn't spontaneously, you know, arise somewhere else. I think one other um, quick comment is that when we look at other stars and we look through our own galaxy or other galaxies, we see that the galaxies are glowing with um, molecules called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, These are components that can make up amino acids. So it's not even that life could arise but it might be so exotic we wouldn't recognize it i would bet a hundred dollars that it's carbon-based life and that you know eventually we'll will find it'll be way very different from what we are but you know it, it, there will be some similarities there'll be some common commonalities
0: let's talk a little bit about how astronomers go about finding planets that they can't see, that are so far away right. that they can't be seen even with the most powerful telescopes.
1: Right, right. Uh, so we have to look at the effect. There, there are, of course, now several techniques. The technique that I use is sometimes called the wobble technique, and we're watching the star itself, and we see we map out the velocity of the star as it orbits a common center of mass with the planet. Now, if you, if you think about, you know, the mass of the star is huge, the mass of the planet is tiny. So the common center of mass is often inside the radius of the star. The star is executing you know, a very tiny orbit. But we, we map that out, and we then infer the presence of a planet that we can't see. Okay, so that technique, that description, might leave you skeptical, and it left most astronomers skeptical until 1999. Again, when we said, okay, but if we really ever write in our data, we're really seeing dynamical motion of a planet being tugged of a star being tugged around by a planet, um, then we will uh, uh, eventually see a planet that passes across the face of its star, and when that happens, the starlight will dim just ever so slightly, mm-hmm. and we can tell you at exactly what time that will happen because we understand the orbit, the orbital parameters. And so we made a prediction uh, for every planet that we found if it's going to transit, and that was the, we didn't know the if, okay, because yeah. one, one orbital parameter was missing in our um, analysis, but if it did, you know, it would occur at exactly 9.35 p.m., and so we had our friends who were measuring brightnesses of stars. They would look at our target star and they'd look at four other stars. And sure enough, one night, you know, in in late 1999, uh, one of the stars dimmed just at within 30 minutes of the predicted time.
0: So it's a reproducible <coughs> thing. That it's is
1: very reproducible. Yeah.
0: We have a question uh, from uh, the public. Uh, David okay. from Carleton College emailing us um, to ask a, ask you to elaborate a little bit and 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 maybe suggest that, well, let me just ask the question. Could David's question, could could some irregularities in celestial orbits be due to small errors in the theory of general relativity instead of due to supposed
1: planets? Right. Well, rather than the errors in the theory of general relativity, I would say that there are certainly going to be general relativistic effects that need to be accounted for in very precise orbit measurements. And so we've done this, for example, with Mercury in our own solar system. But we're very close to Mercury, and we get an incredibly precise you know, measurement of its position. So we can measure that general relativistic perturbation of Mercury, and, but it's at such a tiny level that it's not yet important for uh, most of the other planetary systems that we're looking at. But sure, we're watching all the time what else could be going on in mm-hmm. the system.
0: So so you've got two techniques that you can kind of use one to verify the others exactly, is a general idea. Exactly. So when did this hunt for exoplanets really heat up? When did it get going?
1: Yeah, you know it's been going for probably a century. Oh. And most of the attempts to find planets were failures. In the 1950s, um, Otto Struve predicted that you know if you use the radial velocity technique, you should be able to get down to a high enough precision so that you could at least detect Jupiters that are close to their stars if they existed. And of course, astronomers thought that's ridiculous. J- hot Jupiters are not going to be close to their stars. Um, but the idea was, was right, and people kept pushing and pushing and you know things really started to heat up uh, as you put it in you know the late 1980s uh, when dave latham at harvard uh, discovered a brown dwarf orbiting its star and then in 1995 when michelle mayor and didier collot uh, swiss astronomers discovered uh, a planet like jupiter orbiting a star that's very much like our sun and then as soon as that system was detected there was like an aha moment where we said, oh, you know, we thought these planets would be in 10-year orbits. Who thought they'd be in four-day orbits? And you start looking at the star differently. Instead of taking one or two observations per year, you have to take you know, an observation every night to detect those close-in systems. So we changed our strategy. Uh, we adapted once we found the first planet. Um And suddenly you know they began to pour out, so that now there are hundreds uh with the Doppler technique and thousands from the kepler mission
0: and if i 'm not mistaken uh there's a plan- there's a program here that Yale participates in yeah. um uh, called planet hunters oh right which which actually allows. The public to participate in the discovery of planets. So, right. could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I'm so excited about this project. This is a project that we started with some colleagues at Oxford University. The people at Oxford had set up a whole set series of citizen science projects, like Galaxy Zoo, and uh, and uh, one of the postdocs here, uh, Kevin Chwinski, kept asking me, "Can we do something with exoplanets? The public loves exoplanets." Mm. And I'd think about it and say, yeah, I just can't think of really how we can bring the public in uh, until I saw the Kepler data, okay, from the the NASA Kepler mission, which is measuring the brightness of 150,000 stars and looking for tiny little transits as the stars go in front of the, as the planets go in front of the stars. So we we put together a website, planethunters.org, which serves up the Kepler light curves and has the public look at the data and say, First of all, does the star look reg you know, is it fairly constant in its brightness or is it changing? let me interrupt you yeah.
0: just briefly. So <clears throat> are when you say you have the public look at the data, are they looking right. at numbers or are they looking at visuals?
1: They're looking at a graph. Okay. And we were really worried about showing people a graph, right? That, you know, I tested on some high school students and friends, and we, but we made it I think visually appealing and anyway, the proof is that we now have over one hundred and seventy thousand users. Um, they have collectively put in an amount of time assessing Kepler light curves that is mind boggling. Um, just as background, when I ask people on the Kepler team, they say, oh, I look at the light curves all the time. That's really the way to go. Yes, we have computer algorithms, but I spend so much time. And I say, okay, add up the amount of time that you think you've spent over the last three years and make it run a cumulative total. So 24-7, you do nothing but look at light curves. What do you think it adds up to? And they'll, you know, calculate. I bet it's three months or I bet it's four months. Well, the 170,000... Planet Hunter users have twenty four seven, okay, put in um, a a, a cumulative total of more than three hundred years, three hundred man years, looking at light curves.
0: And these people are all over the world.
1: All over the world. All over the world.
0: Have their contributions (coughs) led to the discovery of new planets? They absolutely
1: have. Um, Of course, they've detected most of the planets that the Kepler algorithms are finding. Kepler has computer algorithms that search through the data because the amount of data is just overwhelming. It's it's just incredible. Um, But they've also, we've published now four papers, and the first discoverers um, in the public for those systems are co-authors on the paper, Uh, and these discoveries have helped the Kepler team because the Kepler team says, wait, why would we have missed that? Right. And they go back and they and they tune up their algorithms, their computer algorithms, so that their algorithms are more efficient.
0: And again, these are these are primarily lay people. Perhaps lay people yeah. with I mean surely with a strong interest in astronomy, but these are not professionally trained astronomers for the most part.
1: Right. Um, and, and you know, I would say even a lot of people Aren't sure what they're looking at, yeah. but they're still finding things. And what was developed on the site—that's the most useful thing of all—is is a sort of a cadre of super users who are actually incredibly good amateur astronomers. And they're very generous with their time, and they're bringing the, the newbies along, and you know, in, and, and putting together collections, and you know, and really making the site quite powerful.
0: So, how do professional um, astronomers make use of this, the contributions of the? Of the we, we
1: can hardly keep up with them <clears throat> uh, and so we've developed a, a second layer to the site um, the uh, you know the users we now have a, an extraction algorithm which which decides which votes are. The, the votes of the public are actually weighted. Um, and the way that we do this is we actually drop in fake transits. We know exactly what the depth and the orbital period is. And as people recover those, then we get an assessment of, you know, how complete their analysis is for, for different ranges of planets. Um, so in any case, what we're doing is extracting them the public's best guesses for transits, and we're moving them to a site which we call Second Look. And we give our 3,000 most dedicated Planet Hunter users access to Second Look. Mm. So they then do a double uh, check, sieving through all of that data. And then it comes out, and, and we then, the professional astronomers, are spending time looking at the light curves, going to the Keck Observatory and collecting more data to follow up, um, and, you know, analyzing the stars, all sorts of things, and, and writing up the papers.
0: Let me take another question uh, from, from the public. Mike emails us to ask, and this is getting back to the topic about life, the potential for life on other planets. Right. If there is life <clears throat> on other planets, should we try to make contact with it? And that isn't really an astronomical question. No, but no,
1: no, it's a, it's it's a, a f- philosophical, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, we don't have much choice. Um, If there's life, imagine like that there was another civilization on a nearby star. Uh, If it were like us, right, and broadcasting uh, TV signals and radio signals, we would have discovered it already. Um, Whether they wanted us to or not, those Mm -hmm. signals would drift past us. Uh, And so our signals have been drifting out over time for the last 50 years, 50 plus years now. And so all stars that are within 50 light years, and that's you know hundreds of stars um, uh, of the of our sun um, ha- could have the option of detecting our signal,
0: uh, mm.
1: so so we might not have a choice. And what we're really looking for, uh, I think, when, when we think about technological uh, life, technological civilizations are serendipitous discoveries. Um, eventually we'll want to harness the energy from the sun. So we might build something called a Dyson sphere that essentially encompasses the sun as a sort of a grid, collects power, and then channels it back to our, our planet. Um, if you do that, then it could affect the spectrum of the sun. It might change the color of the sun in some way for another observer. So we're looking all the time in our data for something that just doesn't seem right.
0: Mm. Yeah, Pluto.
1: Yeah. <laughs> planet
0: or not planet? And what did you make of of Pluto's demotion as uh, from the status of planet within our own solar system? Yeah.
1: I, I see it as science in action. This is the way science goes. Um, we build a theory that describe you know, and also, right, our whole convention for naming a planet. Pluto doesn't care if we call it a planet or an outer course, solar system object. But we care because it helps to define our understanding of what a planet is. And so I think, uh, from from that uh, from that aspect, I think it was pretty brave of the International Astronomical Union to go up against all those kindergartners and say <laughs> Pluto is not a planet. Um, there was a lot of kickback, but you know it was it was the right thing to do. Pluto doesn't look like the other planets in our solar system.
0: Um, let me ask you um, about sort of how close the nearest. Exoplanets are right. Are 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 any of the planets outside of our solar system places that humans conceivably could travel to?
1: Right, good question. Okay, so first of all, the first thing to make clear is that I said before our galaxy, right, is this enormous disk that has you know uh, four hundred billion stars, and then. Globular clusters, uh, sort of in a spherical distribution around it, but all of the planets that we are finding, that the Kepler mission is finding, they're all in a tiny little bubble around the sun. Okay, that's inside of the Milky Way galaxy. So we're not looking, or uh, detecting planets in other gal- right. Those are completely virgin. That's virgin territory. Wow. So we're just talking about a little, our little tiny neighborhood, uh, and yet we're finding all of these planets. Um, so sorry, what was your question? Well, <laughs> oh, so
0: the, the question was: Are there are there exoplanets yeah. that uh, human beings can see? Oh, that we can travel, travel to. to. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I think the closest star where we that we know has planets is about fifteen light years away. Okay. Um, we're looking very hard at the Alpha Centauri system right now, which you can see from the southern hemisphere. It's four light years away. Okay, will we go there? That's actually hard for me to imagine unless physics changes, unless, you know, uh, it, it, it would just require an incredible personal commitment to travel for 40 or 100 years, mm-hmm. right, and have future, your future generations be committing them to space travel. But what we will do? is we will start, as, as technology advances, I, I imagine that we will be sending little bots, you know, and the perfect model is your cell phone. You, send, you accelerate your cell phone to 10% the speed of light, it gets to the Alpha Centauri system in 40 years, it takes pictures, opens up, right, takes pictures, and it phones home, sends the signals back, uh, and, and the travel time for, um, for that radio signal is the speed of light, so it's only four years to get back. Uh, so that kind of thing, I think, will start happening.
0: That is something to think about. Yeah. Deborah, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I can't believe the time has flown by, My but pleasure, it has. Yeah. Um, and it's been great fun, and we'll hope to talk to you again. Sure. Thanks to all of you very much for watching At Yale Live with Deborah Fisher, Professor of Astronomy at Yale University. Thanks very much. Okay. Join us again at the end of the summer.
1: All right. Thanks. It was fun.